If you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to the Gospel of John? John chapter 1. John 1, and we're going to look specifically at John 1.18. Our church for the past three Sundays up until this Sunday, have we've been looking at all these first 18 verses of John's prologue. And verse 18 serves kind of as a summary. And so I want to read the whole passage because there'll be things that we're drawing out from all 18 verses. But we'll specifically be thinking about what verse 18 helps us to see and to understand about Christ. So... If you have John 1, I'd like to just begin by reading verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1. God's Word says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is God? That's a question that, depending on where you ask it, could have a lot of different responses. It'd be a good one to ask in a Sunday school class full of kids. Who is God? Or maybe just around your your table sometime. Who is God? We could even imagine walking uh, next door down to the bingo hall, calling out amidst a number and saying, excuse me, everyone, who is God? I'm not sure what initial response you would get, but it would sure be interesting to know what the crowd there would think. What, who is God? Or think about walking down the streets of, of New York City, or of London, or of Jerusalem, or Baghdad, or Bogota, or Dubai, or Manila, and just asking strangers and saying, who is God? When we think about this wider world context and we ask that question, the responses could be very unpredictable. And they would be almost as different as the different people that you encountered. Because there's so many different factors that come into and inform how we all answer that question, who is God? Now that's not to say that it's a bad question. Who is God is a really good question, isn't it? Uh, In fact, it's a question that every living soul is asking, whether they would admit that 
or not. We all want to know who God is. And even we who, who come to church and identify as children of God through faith in Christ, we are seeking to know more and more of who God is. We who know God are seeking to know him more because there's always more to know about who God is. So who is God is a good question. If there's a problem with that question, it would seem to be that prior to asking the question, who is God, we need to ask, how can we know who God is? Where do we get the answers to the question, who is God? What's the source of knowledge about God? Often we assume that we just sort of intuitively or innately know who God is. That the answer to the question, who is God, is found somewhere in me. I can figure out who God is on my own. The problem is if we assume that knowledge of God is is within us, then we will inevitably make God in our own image. And according to our own culture, according to our own desires, our own blind spots, which is a dangerous thing, isn't it? To make God in your own image. In my darker moments, if I make God in my image, then God is a very judgmental person, and he's always frustrated with me. He's gracious, very gracious, but only when I earn that grace, which is not what grace is. (laughs) And God is, in my own image, he could be aloof, or he could be annoyed with me. In my better moments when I'm thinking, great, he just forgives everything that I do very easily and very quickly, and he's not a God of judgment at all. How about you? What's the, what's the God created in your own image look like? The fact that our answers would be so different and that all of these hypothetical people on the streets of the world will answer that question differently shows us that the question, how can I know who God is, is not answered by saying, well, by looking in myself. I just know who God is innately. What's interesting, though, as you read John chapter 1, is that there is a sense in which God has revealed himself within each of us. John writes about the light that was the life of men and how this light could not be overcome by the darkness. And he talks about that Jesus came into the world in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. He came as the light who enlightens everybody. So every person in some way sees the light of Jesus. I think John's talking here about about primarily the image of God that remains in each of us. There's something about the fact that we are created by God that makes us know him in some small way. It's probably the reason that any of us would even ask, who is God? It's because God has stamped his image in us, and it remains there, that the the light is in us, and despite the darkness of sin, that light continues to shine in our conscience, reminding us that, that we are eternal souls that have been estranged from our Creator, and that we want to know Him, we want to get back to Him. This echo of God's image fills us with a longing, a longing for connection, a longing for relationship that's that's rooted in the relationship with God that we have actually lost it's the image of God in us that makes us long for the joy of Christmas. The image of God in us, it, it has us remember with fondness the, the love and the joy that often surrounds this time of year. It's the image of God that makes us want to try to recreate that joy year after year with our traditions. Because we long for relationship and ultimately that relationship is found 
in God. And the light of the image of God in us, however dim it is, it, it looks out at the light that's in the world around us and it recognizes, as Psalm 19 says, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That the world around us is telling us who God is. The image of God in us sees the beauty of creation and it believes that there's more to it than meets the eye. So we travel to the coast, to the ocean, and we go to the mountains. We see God. We, we believe, as Rich Mullins saying, that there's, there's more that dances on the prairies than the wind, more that pulses in the ocean than the tide. There's something more that we see in the world around us. But the problem is that the image of God in us and the witness, witness of creation around us, these aspects of what people call general revelation, they're, they're enough to raise the question, who is God in our hearts? And they are enough to give us a, an outline of his beauty and his glory and his power. But the, the picture that they provide is, is fuzzy. It's not clear. My children have filled my wife's phone with pictures and videos. Does anyone else have this problem? Children taking their phone and filling up the memory card. And until yesterday morning, I think it changed yesterday morning, but it was so full that if someone sent her a picture, she could only view the thumbnail of that picture. She could not bring it up. The, 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 it was too full. They wouldn't show the, the full picture. She could only view this small part of it. General revelation, you might think of, is, is like that thumbnail. We can see some things, but it's, it's small, and it's hard to fully make out exactly who God is. But what we need is we need the full-sized picture. Or better yet, we need to see the masterpiece that's hanging on the, the wall in the art museum. If we want to know who God is, we need to, to really understand it. And general revelation is not a, enough. So if I've lost you already, here's what I'm saying. We're asking the, the question before the question, who is God? Before we understand who God is, we need to ask, how can we know who God is? How can, how can we bring into more focus this fuzzy outline that's arisen by the fact that, that we, when we consider our conscience and when we wonder at the world that God has made? Where, where is the full-sized masterpiece that we need to stand in front of and contemplate to understand who God is? And this is where we come back to John 1, 1 to 18. And we find that the reason we can know God, the reason any of us can know God is because God has revealed himself to us. He's told us who he is. He's done that in creation, and he's done that in our conscience, but he's done more than that. John 1, 1 through 18 tells us that he's done it most fully in his son. And so I would summarize John 1, 18 with these words. They're, they're in your bulletin in the notes there. This is kind of a one-point sermon. And this is the point. If we want to know who God is, we must look at the Word. If we want to know who God is, what's the source of knowledge about, the, about who God is? It's by looking at the Word, or as Mary did, pondering in our hearts exactly who Jesus is. Now when I say, if you want to know who God is, we must look at the Word, I imagine that many of us equate the Word with the Bible, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and God's word is his special, unique revelation of who he is. And even here in the gospel of John in chapter 20, he says that he's writing these things. He wrote these things so that his readers, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we would find life in his name. So John writes this so that we would believe this. John writes this, in fact, he calls witnesses. He calls John the Baptist to testify, and he calls all these other witnesses to say who Jesus really was and is. In fact, all of Scripture is a witness to who God is. All of Scripture is a revelation of God. And all of Scripture is a source of the true and unchanging knowledge about God's ways in this world and about his character. That's what the Scriptures are. You know, we head into the new year, and it's a time to make resolutions. And often people will make a resolution about reading the Bible. But let me just encourage you as we head into 2019, if you're going to make that resolution, to to maybe not say, this year I'm going to read through the Bible. Just maybe say it this way. This year, I'm going to learn more about God. Both resolutions will actually lead to the exact same thing. They'll lead to you reading the scriptures because that's the revelation of who God is. But saying I'm going to read a book versus saying I'm going to learn about God feels a little different, doesn't it? So it may be helpful to think of that resolution less in terms of reading a book and more in terms of getting to know the God who loves you, who created you, because the scriptures are a revelation of the unseen God. Now, having said that about the value of the Bible as the Word of God, we should note that here in John 1, when John talks about the Word, he's not referring to the Bible. He's referring to Jesus. John 1, 1 opens, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those words, in the beginning, recall to mind the first words of Genesis. But he's not speaking about, about the creation of the world, but rather he's speaking about the existence of the Word. And who is the Word? The Word is Jesus, the Son of God. And before he reveals him as the Son of God, he tells us a few other things there, especially in verses 1 through 5. He tells us that the Word is the eternal Word. He's the one who existed before time began. He's the preexistent one, meaning that he has no beginning, but he has been with God from the beginning because he is God. He's the creative word. He, so he's begotten. He's the only begotten son of the father, but he's not created. Rather, he was with God from the beginning, and he actually created the world. He's the, the one through whom God created the world. He's the eternal word, the creative word, and he's the life-giving word. Jesus is the source of all life. And any light or knowledge that we have, any breath that's in us, we have because Jesus has given it to us. And this eternal, creative, life-giving word is God. John makes it clear that Jesus is God. And then he helps us to see that Jesus came into the world that he had made. Verse 9 tells us that the true light was coming into the world he had made. And verse 14 says that the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a miracle that's so deep that we have to pause each Christmas and soak it in. So soak that in for a minute. The eternal, creative, life-giving word became a baby. That's a miracle. If you go to the Speed Art Museum on the campus of UofL, you can go today, any other Sunday. It's free, open from 12 to 5. But if you go, 
and you walk up the ramp to the main collection wing and you pass through a couple of galleries and you get to the hall of sculptures and you take a left and you go up the the grand staircase and back right in that area there there's some european art you're going to see a a painting from 1648 by a person named Laurent de la Hire. I think that's how you say it. And the title of that painting is Rest on the Flight to Egypt. If you remember where Jesus in the storyline has to, to leave because Herod is killing all the children two years old and under. He's fleeing to Egypt with his parents. I could show you a picture on the screen, but I won't because then you won't go see it in person and you need to. But it, it depicts Joseph, and Joseph is standing next to Mary, and Mary is sitting on a, a stone and nursing the not-yet-two-year-old Jesus. If you look at the picture, the figures actually take up probably 10, maybe 15% of the canvas, and it helps us to see this, this wide canvas and these small people there. It helps us to get some sense of the smallness of them in this world. And it helps us especially get the smallness of this baby and how weak this baby is. Of course, it's an imagined scene that's not talked about in the scriptures, but it's also a scene that we know had to have happened. If you ever traveled with a nursing infant, you know that there's a point you got to stop, you got to feed that baby. And it's such a common scene, though, in all of history when you think about it, a child being fed from his mother's breast. How many children have done that throughout the history of the world? Why would someone decide to paint a picture of a baby nursing at his mother's breast. Well, because that baby was the eternal, creative, life-giving word. And so this artist ignites our imaginations to consider the reality that Jesus was a human being. He was a, a baby. He was a child. He was a toddler. He was a teenager. He was a young adult. He was the man who walked the streets of Jerusalem and walked the streets of Nazareth. He was the word that became flesh. But why? That's another good question, isn't it? Why why did God become a man? Why did God become a man? There's a lot of, of ways to rightly answer that question. He became a man because there was no other way for him to save us. We cannot climb some imaginary ladder of works or goodness to get to him. So he had to come to us, which means we could say that God became man to save us. God became man to make us his children. God became man because he loves the world and that love overflowed in the sending of Jesus who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled all righteousness, who died, not for any sins of his own, but for our sins, for yours and for mine. Jesus came so that we could be saved by faith. Faith that he has lived the life that we could not. Faith that he has died for our sins so that we don't have to. Jesus came so that we could be given the right through repentance and faith to be called children of God. I'll tell you another right answer though. That God became man so that we could know who he is. This is what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verse 18 says that the only begotten Son has explained 
the unseen God. So we're back to our question before the question of who God is. How can we know who God is? Well, if you want to know who God is, we must look at the Word. And the Word is Jesus Christ. The idea of of Jesus revealing and making God known is set in contrast to the statement at the beginning of verse 18. Did you see that? No one has ever seen God. Now, within the context of this passage, that's a statement that feels a bit confusing because who had John just talked about prior? He just talked about Moses. And other than Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, if anyone comes to your mind, if you know your Old Testament, when you think about someone who saw God, then you think about Moses. Moses was the man who was the friend of God. He spoke with God face to face. And after smashing the first copy of the Ten Commandments in response to the Israelites' idolatry, Moses boldly comes to God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, and he says, God, please show me your glory. What a, what a request from Moses. And listen to what God says. God says in Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What a picture of the greatness and the glory of God. And then what happens is that that God passes by Moses and Moses sees the back of God and he hears God proclaim. This is how God reveals himself. When God has the chance to say exactly who he is, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And for all the wonder that fills that moment and the beauty of what Moses is able to see and the fact that Moses does see God, there is also a sense, John is telling us, in which Moses and no one has ever seen God. The contrast between Jesus and Moses is set up in verses 16 and 17. And and we see that Jesus comes and he comes full of grace and truth. But the law was given through Moses. Now, that's not to say that the law was bad. It was a revelation of God's character. And it was given, in fact, out of love for God's people. We could even say that it did show God's grace and truth to his people. And we could say that when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as a God of grace and truth. And yet, John can still rightly say that no one has seen God. No one has fully understood him. Because Jesus is the key to knowing God. I'll go to the best theology book I know to help you. Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in the Jesus Storybook Bible, right at the very beginning. She says, there's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. 
It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And Jesus can be that key. He can be the the missing piece that makes sense of everything. Because verse 18 tells us, He's the only begotten Son of God who is in closest relationship with Him. He's at the Father's side. I grew up with the King James. You know what it says? It says He's in the bosom of the Father. He is close to God's very heart. That's where Jesus comes from. And that's how Jesus can reveal God in a way that no one had ever seen up until that point when he entered the world. You know those viewfinders that you find at scenic spots? You know, you drop a quarter in and then you're able to see across the valley. You're able to see up in the mountains. I saw this video Uh, I saw it previous and I looked it up again this week and there were some of these installed in the Smoky Mountains this past fall, but they were unique. They were unique in that they allowed people who had been born colorblind and allowed them to see the colors of fall. They had never seen, you know, all the different shades of orange and, and red in contrast to the green. They'd never been able to see that. And I watched this, and I watched as these three men who had never understood the changing of the leaves that people had told them about, that they were literally brought to tears when they were given the chance to see this mountainside in all the beauty of fall. They were allowed in a moment to see the world in a way that they had never been able to up to that point. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, I would invite you to feel the, the wonder of this, that we who now live after the first coming of Jesus, are given the opportunity through faith to see and understand who God is more than Moses, more than anyone before him. Moses was the friend of God who spoke to him face to face. But we who live after the coming of Jesus are able to see more than him and more than any of the saints before Christ ever could who God is is. We're able to look at the person of Jesus and find in him the fullest revelation of the person and character of the God who made us. We should feel the wonder and the blessing of that, that generations before did not know God in the deep sense that we can because of Christ. But shouldn't that also make us take a step back and think about the greatness of Christ, who he is and what he's able to reveal to us? Let me be clear, none of this means that we need to see Jesus in the flesh to know God. You don't need to actually physically see his presence because the word has been revealed in the written word. We read the scriptures in the light of Jesus with the spirits of illumination and we're able to see Jesus and therefore we're able to see and know who God is. So if looking at the word, who is Jesus, is the answer to the question, how can we know who God is? Then the other question, we can get to our big question, right? Who is God? So I'm just going to spend the rest of our time answering that question. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, We don't have time to answer that, but here's some things I would give you to think on very briefly. Some things to think on that I think John would highlight and want us to think about. Who is God? You can think on these in the coming days. 
who is God? He is full of glory. He is full of glory. John talks about Jesus revealing the glory of God. Though veiled in flesh, Jesus helps us understand the glory of God, the the greatness and the power and the wonder of God. We see this in Jesus' miracles, in his transfiguration, in his resurrection and his ascension, and then in the the abiding power of his spirit that is in us and that continues to work in this world. Jesus, he comes in great humility, but he reveals the glory and the majesty of God. God is full of glory. He is full of truth. He is full of truth. Jesus comes and he speaks with authority, not like any of the scribes had before. That was the big contrast. No one had ever heard anyone teach like this man. He comes as the one who, who, shows, who is the, the final measure of what is right and what is true. He speaks with clarity about sin righteousness and judgment. He rejects external religion and he's always trying to get to our hearts, asking what true obedience and what true belief are. He announces the truth of the gospel and the need of repentance and faith. Jesus is full of glory. He is full of truth and he is full of grace. In fact, grace upon grace is what we receive from him. We thought about this last week as a church and we said that Jesus is just dripping with grace. And from him we receive grace upon grace. He's still glorious and righteous and majestic, but he also helps us to see the love and the mercy and the grace of God in a way that no one had ever seen up until that point. Jesus doesn't come in fire and smoke, does he? He comes in humility. He comes as a baby. And in his miraculous works and in his words, we see grace. He embraces us and we feel the warmth of grace. His clothes smell of grace. The bread of life he gives us tastes like grace. The look in his eyes is a look full of grace. If we want to know who God is, we look at the word, the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world who comes to reveal the Father to us in a way that no one had ever seen up to that point. Can I give you one more thought then before we close? As we head into this holiday week in the new year, We've said if we want to know who God is, we look at the word, the light of the world who shows us who God is. And Jesus is the word. He reveals who God is. But then look what John does later on in the book of First John. We read these words earlier. Maybe you were wondering why we were reading First John 4. Let me just read those words to you again. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. You'll hear some familiar phrases. John writes in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then look at verse 12. 
No one has ever seen God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John again reminds us that no one has ever seen God, but rather than saying Jesus has explained God, he talks about the love that we who are in Christ are supposed to have for one another because of the indwelling spirit. So how can other people know who God is? Well, through the word, through Jesus, yes. But what does John say here in 1 John? He says that they also come to know who God is when we who have come to know God through Christ love one another. When we exemplify, when we live out the grace and truth of God each day, when we act like Jesus as individuals and as the church, people come to see God through us. It's as if the unseen God, who is no longer on this earth, reveals himself in we who are his children, who are still in this world. Think about the privilege of that. That you and I are God's children through faith. And we can now be a revelation of who God is to our children, to our extended family, to our neighbors, to the strangers that we meet. We are not the light of the world. But Jesus says we are the light of the world. Make sure your L is lowercase though, okay? Jesus is the capital L, light of the world. But he tells us that we are also the light of the world and we can let our light, our light shine before others so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so you can show forth who God is. And so I would encourage you as you invite friends to this evening's service, as you spend time with friends and family this Christmas, as you do your last-minute shopping, if anyone still is doing shopping, and it gets crazy out there, you have an opportunity to shine as a light as you work and play and live and die. You and I can help people to know who God is, that he's glorious, and that he's full of grace and truth. If we want to know who God is, we must look at the word. We must look to Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, Paul writes something like this. He says, as we behold the glory of the Lord in Christ with unveiled faces, unlike Moses, we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another so that as people see us living in obedience to Christ, and in love for one another. When they look at us, they see what it was like when God walked the earth. Let's pray.